So I was going to swing by our other house and put on my cowboy boots and a nicer <laughs> shirt. But in fact, we had a goat birth this morning, so I was just kind of running behind. Um, who can get the next slide? So if you're like any group of teachers I've ever worked with, or any group of students, you want to know what's on the test. So there's going to be two things on the test, woolly mammoths and Wyatt Earp. So you can quit taking notes and just relax and take in some information. I'm going to talk to you today about some very broad themes of history. How many of you have had that kind of history class? Okay, no offense, but with a coach in high school where you had to memorize the uh, dates and facts and spit them back on your notebook? That's not the kind of historian I am. What I'm really fascinated with in history are very broad themes that repeat themselves across large periods of time. And that's a lot of what we're going to look at. We're going to look at a very broad section of the Southwest, mostly north of the border, because that's the area that I study and know the most about. When you think about the Southwest right now, particularly the US-Mexico border, I have friends all over the country and through most of Europe and Latin America. And what they think of when they think about the Southwest are a handful of things. They talk about SB 1070 quite a bit. The ones that are a little bit more knowledgeable talk about the humanity side of the US-Mexico border right now, particularly dealing with the issue of immigration. This is from an article in the New York Times, and it's talking about how these people are now kind of in a no man's land. The idea of a Napotla in Chicano literature, you're in neither place. That they're not US citizens, but they're not Mexican citizens, but they can't really go back and they don't have documentation. They drive cars, they have a driver's license, they have a home, they may have a mortgage, but they're not citizens. They're in a very interesting status within our country, which we don't, frankly, deal with very well. But the thing that I think that the Southwest, particularly Arizona, is known for around the world more than any other thing is the shootout at the OK Corral. <laughs> the wild, wild west. And we can kind of roll our eyes if we're serious historians and scholars. But actually, I think there's something here that's really important to think about. And I'll get to that. And what most people do know about the wild, wild west comes through fiction. Not through reality, not through any kind of in-depth kind of study, but in romanticized kind of pieces like Tombstone. I actually had a chance to work on the other film, Wyatt Earp, and uh, Kevin Costner spent a fair amount of money doing historical research. And you do all these great reports for him, and you get paid. You know, it's very nice. I was a graduate student. Then they pretty much throw him in the trash and go on with what they're doing. They have some kind of artistic vision. <laughs> <laughs> so the shootout at the OK Corral, you know, what are the facts? We know it occurred in what is now Tombstone. It was the Arizona Territorial Period. We know the date, late in the fall. The thing lasted 38 seconds. No way. 38 seconds from start to finish. If you don't believe me, there's a thing called the Lawmen and Outlaws Conference that comes down to Cochise County every single year. And these guys, they're fanatical. I, I actually admire them. It's a kind of history that I don't do, but it's called antiquarianism. They can walk you through the steps of where, who was, and when they shot. And they actually reproduce it. And it's really fascinating. It, for me, not fascinating in terms of the historical moment, but in terms of the way these guys are like living their kind of fantasy, if you will. It was very much a confrontation, very personal, between the Clantons, the McClory's, and the Earps. By the time it was done, three were dead, three were wounded. And it brings more than half a million tourists a year to Tombstone. <laughs> half a million tourists a year to a county that has a population of about 125,000 right now. 
many of those tourists, probably at least half of them, are from foreign countries. Germans in particular, as you know, are just fascinated with the Wild West. They have their own Louis L'Amour, Karl May, who's from the sister city of Syrabis. But the less widely discussed tale of the shootout at the OK Corral, I think actually deals with something that's much more important and in a lot of ways deals with issues that we are seeing today as we live in the Southwest. It was very much a conflict between an urban population and a rural population. It's hard to think of Tombstone being urban today, but it was one of the largest cities between the Mississippi and San Francisco at the time that it was in its heyday. Very much a conflict between these urban dwelling miners, mining interest, capitalist, and these rural dwelling ranchers who felt they'd been there a long time and had certain rights to the area. They were mostly ranching on the open range. They had very strong senses of culture and custom that they were invested in. Very much a conflict between capital intensive mining and cattlemen. Most of the mining capital really was from New York City, where all good things come from in terms of money. Vested here in the Southwest. You talk, typically think of mining, right, as like you know a little guy with his burrow and a pick and a little pan out there. Mining typically involves, in reality, the investment of millions and millions of dollars with no return on your investment for up to a decade at which point you're going to pull in 6 to 10%. This is pretty much across history, whether it was back then or it's the Rosemont mine. It's often represented by foreign interest. We're investing capital in America to make money and then take their capital back wherever they come from. It was very much a conflict between the unionists, who were mostly dwelling in Tombstone, people who had fought on the union side of the Civil War, and Southerners who were living out in the rural countryside. If you haven't spent a lot of time in the South, it's still a very bitter, bitter argument now. It was really bitter in the 1870s and 80s. People had not forgotten this. This was a lived experience within their lifetime. Very much a conflict between national capital, local economics, and very much a conflict between two vigilante groups. We often think of the ERPs as representing law and order, but they also represented a wider vigilante group called the Committee of Safety. And the cowboys, of course, that we know more about with the Clintons and the McClory's. And also a conflict between two newspapers who are telling different versions of the same story, the epitaph versus the, nu the nugget. I want you to keep some of these. One of my great mentors, Dick Edlane, talks about in history. You have moments when you're a splitter and you're splitting hairs, like which guy stood where during the shootout. And you have moments when you're lumping. We're going to do a lot of lumping today and looking at some very broad themes. Keep in mind some of these themes as we go through the rest of the presentation today. Because what I'd really like you to think about is a much longer and much deeper history of the Southwest than I think you're normally accustomed to thinking of when you think about the U.S.-Mexico border. Most of us as historians think really in a linear fashion. We impose a linear chronological narrative on everything in our lives in a way that we can't even imagine because we do it so automatically. You got up this morning, you're here now, you're going to have lunch, you'll go home tonight. You were born, you hit middle age. Someday you're going to croak. <laughs> one of the things I'm actually much more convinced by in looking at Mandelbrot sets and fractal theory, but actually looking at history across time, is that time is certainly moving. But one of the things I find fascinating in history, the great lesson of history is not that it repeats itself, but that we never bother to learn from it. And one of the things I'm particularly interested in history when I look at it is looking across broad swaths to see what's repeating itself over and over and over again. 
And these are some of the tools that I actually use when I deal with groups. I do a fair amount of mediation between ranchers and environmentalists. I was actually out yesterday with the Border Patrol and some of my neighbors looking at, they cut the fence, driven a load of drugs across the fence, and put the fence back yesterday. The Border Patrol didn't even know what happened. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so this is Southern Cochise County. It's the San Pedro River. This is actually my house right here, about a quarter mile from the border. But this is a very old landscape. It's been exposed for 10, 20 million years. Something that's really hard to think about, though, is about 20,000 years ago, this area was covered with about six feet of ice. And about 14 to 12,000 years ago, the ice was melting, global warming, not the first time it's come up. There was a global warming, and the ice started receding. But what was happening was that there were large swampy areas out here. This area along the border stretches all the way from the area I want to talk about today really stretches from Nogales over to Douglas. And the kind of complexity I think that you encounter along the border is like nothing else in America. The ways in which people live on either side of an international border. And I really like the way Oscar Martinez deals with this. He talks about border citizens, that there are people that are on the Mexican side that only live in Mexico. There are people that live on the American side, like my parents, who have never been to Mexico, ever. Not once, not ever. Mm. And then there are border citizens who move back and forth on a constant basis. And a lot like Javier was talking about at the very end of his talk, a lot of the border citizens utilize that border for their own ends. Usually for increase. I think when you look across broad swaths of humanity, what people want is increase, right, for their families. Who doesn't want to be richer than your parents were? Who doesn't want more for your children than you had? And there's a particular way, this is true across the world, it's not just here, but there's a particular way in which real border citizens utilize the border for their own ends to gain increase. Almost every border situation in the world, there's an economic disparity on either side of the border. It's obvious today with the Mexico-US border. But I want you to think a little bit broader, and we're going to come back to that. This is actually right near my house. This is actually not far from our backyard which you put a little bit of snow on the top. This is the fence coming down to the Coronado Monument, and it doesn't really look to scale over here, but the fence crosses near our land about a quarter mile away. We have some higher desert land, but we have this lower Cienega. It is one of those alluvial fans that goes off into the San Pedro, which of course, you know, the San Pedro flows north, right, along with the Santa Cruz. There's very few rivers that do that in North America, but this is one of them. What I'm fascinated about, can you go back one slide real quick? What I'm fascinated with is the way in which people have used this border in particular. Remember I talked about that ice age? As people were working the edge of the ice flows for increase for their families. So what did they do? They found megafauna that got stuck in the mud. They had invented a technology which we call Clovis points today, it's small fluted points you break off with obsidian. Other kinds of rock will work as well, some of which they had traded from as far south as Mexico City area, all the way up to the border. But they would basically run up, several guys, get their guts up, go up and stab a woolly mammoth. Woolly mammoths, you know, it's got a little bit taller than that. It's a pretty good sized animal. But it provides a fair amount of food. 
I believe this is actually Vance Haynes, who's been a professor at the U of A for a long time, very famous individual, very, very widely respected around the world. They're excavating some dinosaur bones, um, not dinosaurs, scratch that, woolly mammoth bones near the golf course in Naco, Arizona. As you look up and down the San Pedro River, some of the best, largest, most exposed, most documented mammoth kill sites in the entire world are up and down this valley, in this border region. Whether you're up near, there's several up here near Trimstone, there's a number around Greenbrush Draw, which is where you just, Greenbush Draw, thank you, which is not named after a bush, it's named after Colonel Green and Mr. Bush, which you just saw the excavation from. So part of what I'm making in a very broad stroke here is an argument that people use this border, if you will, an ecological border, a climate border, for increase and exploited that over the period of about two to 3,000 years. We know they were down there starting to hunt woolly mammoths by about 12,000 years ago. And about 10,000 years ago, things had gotten a little bit warmer. Their hunting technology and their abilities had increased. Infant mortality decreased, so actually people had more kids and they survived longer. The climate change was affecting the megafauna. There's off these large bison down there that they would run up and stab to death. They engaged in something called the Pleistocene overkill, which you probably heard about before. They basically killed off all the animals. It became bad enough that they couldn't afford to really support themselves anymore, and they moved to other areas. Some of them go down into Mexico, some of them go up to what is now Phoenix. But all of those people in this area, despite many of their own creation myths, had really migrated across that Bering Strait down to this area at some point in history, again, hunting, trying to provide increase for their family. Most of the people were Athabascan speakers. They became different groups, and you can split hairs about this, but they became the Apaches, the Navajos, the different groups that inhabit much of the Southwest. But one of the things that's a really difficult problem in the Southwest, as we know, is water. Now, if you want to live like the Pima, the people that used to be the Pima and the Papago, if you want to live in very small, dispersed bands, it's, it's possible to eke out a living down here. But if you want to have what we think of as an advanced civilization, you've got to have farming. You've got to have a way to feed a large number of people in a very small area. Does that make sense? Yes. A small band the size of this, we could go out and hunt and disperse ourselves over a couple hundred acres and do just fine. But if we want to have a town, we've got to find a way to farm. And if you're going to farm in the Southwest, what do you got to have? Water. Now we know that we accomplished this in the 20th century with the Central Arizona Project, arguably one of the greater engineering feats of modern man. But it ain't the first irrigation project of large scale that took place in the Southwest. Some of the people that used to hunt the woolly mammoths dispersed, I'm talking in very broad strokes here. If you're an anthropologist, you can fight about this for decades. That's what you do at your conferences, but that's not what I'm doing today. <laughs> Just part of the group dispersed and became what are known as the Hohoka. They lived under what is now, they lived in what is now Phoenix. They had rubber ball courts. They played these games with rubber balls that were the size of Cardinal Stadium. They had apartment complexes that would house hundreds of people. But most interesting to me is they had these incredible irrigation ditches. Now, they did not have shovels. They didn't have that technology. There's some argument about whether they had hoes or not, which are arguably hoes are probably one of the greatest. Time frame? Sorry, historians. 2,000 years ago. 
they may have had, there's an argument about whether they had hoes or not. Hoes are arguably one of the greatest technological advances that farmers can possibly use. You can still see them through much of the world. One man with a hoe, I can go out and farm about five to 40 acres, depending on what I'm growing. Without a hoe, what do you use to dig a hole? Rocks, sticks, your hands, baskets, maybe pottery. That's a hell of a, excuse me, that's a heck of a big hole to dig without a backhoe. But one of the things I find interesting is that if you look at the yellow lines, these are the prehistoric canals. If you look at the blue lines, these are the canals we use today in Phoenix. They're built almost entirely on the exact same routes that the Hohokam used in almost the exact same places. And people are settled in almost exactly the same neighborhoods that they used to be in. It's true of Phoenix, it's true of Albuquerque, where I spent a long time. You can go out and throw a rock, start digging, and find an older settlement that used to be right where you are under any modern town in the Southwest. We know that as the Central Arizona Project started to develop, they built a number of dams. The control of water was crucial. The Hohokam faced the same thing. Now, the Hohokam had a different ecological adaptation. When the water ran and it flooded, they farmed like crazy. And when it dried up, they quit farming for a while, and they'd engage in hunting and gathering activities. Well, as farmers today, we don't like that. We like to have a lot more control over nature. So we have a number of dams. That's okay. Well, that's all good for agriculture, but what does it have to do with us? Without the kind of control of water that projects the size of the Central Arizona Project enable people to engineer in what uh, Donald Worcester calls the technocratic capitalist society. These are not just people that are brilliant about water. People like Floyd Dominey, who's quite a political character, to be nice about it. Guys that actually understood water, hydrology, the engineering of dams, what it took to do that. It took the investment of millions and millions and millions of dollars. Because you wouldn't have Paradise Valley if you didn't have Hoover Dam or Glen Canyon Dam. <laughs> you wouldn't have Las Vegas. Go ahead. You also wouldn't have the Palo Verde nuclear plant. Now, why do you care about that? This is how we have tried to adapt to living in the Southwest over a very long period of time. You can look through the population stats over the last century. It's really after World War II when air conditioning becomes widely used and affordable, first evaporative cooling and then air conditioning, that people start settling in this area in significant numbers. But what do you need to run that kind of machinery? Electricity and water. You use the water to fill your swimming pool for evaporative cooling, and you need the electricity to do the same. And where did they get the electricity from? Those same dams. They're dams often in the same areas that the Hohokam were trying to use as well. Another thing that I personally find fascinating is if you track the early Indian trails and game hunting trails across the West, there's still the same trade routes, travel routes that we use today. The Butterfield stage route from after the Civil War follows almost exactly the same route that we used for Route 66, which is the highway I grew up with. And looking around the room, some of you did as well. And it's pretty much the same routes that the railroads took, or that I-40 and now I-10 took. 
But part of what I'm just trying to get you to think about as you go out and look at the landscape, and it's really effective, I find, with students, even more effective with really uh, radical vigilantes, to think about a very long human history overlaid on that landscape. It's not just what you see today. It's the same stuff that people have been using. It's the same landscape that people have been using for at least 10 or 12,000 years in this part of the country. Which, of course, brings us back to Wyatt <laughs> Now, Wyatt and his family, as I'm sure you know, they're from Missouri. They're involved in the Civil War. What people often don't like to talk about is Wyatt and his brothers were actually arrested for stealing horses at some point in their lives in some pretty shady deals and fled Missouri. By the time Wyatt Earp gets to Tombstone, as most many of us know, he'd only killed two men ever. He mostly would arrest drunken cowboys by whacking them over the head with his pistol. The man seemed to utterly be fearless in the face of that kind of confrontation. But if Wyatt Earp is important to the Southwest, to the border, even more important is a man by the name of Fred Harvey, who's probably less widely known. I would argue that Fred Harvey and the next person we'll see, not yet, Mary Coulter, probably did more to promote the Southwest as being kind of the wild, wild west than anybody I can think of. Mary Coulter, in many ways, invented, if you will, the architecture that we think of as Southwestern today, that kind of Spanish revival, the two-aisle roofs, the Moorish architecture, the Moorish arches. She's very much responsible for the fake Hopi ruin that's on the edge of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> in a lot of ways, very much responsible for that kind of um, Grand Lodge style that we see. It came out of the Adirondacks as well at the same period of time, but very much she put a southwestern stamp on it across the west. And you could say, so what? Well, it was a fascination with that kind of style that led a man by the name of John Ford an Irish immigrant, a film director. He had directed a number of silent films. But when he came out to the southwest, particularly to the Four Corners region, to the Monument Valley, he fell in utter love. And if there's any kind of iconographic image that goes with the southwest, Tombstone, Monument Valley. Who doesn't recognize the mittens the moment you see them? And think of that as the southwest. Think about all the cheap ads you've seen, all of the western ads. Ralph Lauren, Stagecoach in 1939, the film that made John Wayne a star. Until then, he'd been a second-rate actor in a lot of B films. Famous stories. These guys used to go out there and hold up at uh, Gold's Trading Post, which is down the road a ways, drank, brought in prostitutes from Mexico, gambled, got in fights with the locals, had a lot of fun in that kind of context, if you will, making no judgment one way or the other. But they brought a southwestern imagery to a large, both American and international public in a way that had never been done before. So whether you have John Wayne early in his career from um, Stagecoach to the Biltmore Hotel, I think you're very much evoking, if you will, those kinds of architectural southwestern sensibilities that Mary Coulter and Fred Harvey had exploited to bring people out to the tourist west. Which leads to large developments done by Del Webb, Pulte Homes out here in Phoenix. Leads to my personal mecca of Arizona, Sun City, on the way out of town. But again, if 
you look historically, these are all located on the trade, on the trade routes, on the Hohokam's canals. And none of these are possible without the kind of water management and electricity production that you see from those dams. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, a lot of this is happening up in Phoenix. How does this affect the border? In the last decade or so, I was just talking to Colin about this, there is a fascinating way in which we have in this country criminalized border crossers. When I was a kid, people crossed the border, went to work, went back home. They were undocumented. Yep. I don't really like illegal. I like the word undocumented, but that's me. Okay. Constantly. Was it always that way? Well, in fact, no, it wasn't. Like most historical things, we go through waves. Right. Those are waves, but we go through spirals where we do things one way and then we do them another. Fairly recently, in the last couple of years, this is a National Guard tower that was actually on the corner of our property for, I don't know, gosh, the better part of a year. A couple of really nice guys, a Hispanic young sergeant out of Phoenix, a guy from Eastern Oregon and a guy from Eastern Washington who didn't know where the hell they were and what was going on. They thought it was the strangest duty they'd ever drawn, but they were glad not to be over in Afghanistan or Iraq, assigned with their National Guard unit. Very nice guys. They went and got pizza in town every day for lunch, came back out, rotated 24 on and 24 off. You have in that part of the country people like John Ladd, who's actually my neighbor. John's a very reasonable guy, pretty much fed up with the Border Patrol. Because his family's been in this landscape for more than 100 years, been there a long time. John's dad is the guy who broke the strike at the Bisbee Mine back in the 60s, which is the whole other story. But the problem that John has down there has to do with feeling secure and property destruction. And I think it's a very interesting contrast with what you see coming out of like SB 1070 in Phoenix, which is really about race and ethnicity. And on the border, it's not about race and ethnicity. It's about simple security and property destruction. Most of you live, well, I don't know. I actually don't know that. I'm sure many of you live in a home Imagine if someone kept breaking down your fence every single week. And the Border Patrol came driving through your yard every single week. And you had people crossing through your backyard every single day. After a while, you'd get a little cranky. But the National Guard, just a couple of years ago, is not the first time that we have militarized the border. Some of the major battles of the Mexican Revolution were fought in Naco and Agua Prieta, and also in Nogales. But particularly in Naco, America was in an absolute panic that somehow, well, there were a lot of Mexicans fleeing the revolution, crossing the border, to be expected. But America was absolutely terrified of this invasion of Mexico and absolutely terrified that this civil unrest would spill across the border somehow. The actual numbers of people that got injured on our side of the border as a result of the Mexican Revolution, pretty slim. I won't say zero, but it's, you can count them on a couple of hands. But what people did do during the entire Mexican Revolution, there are a number of folks who made a fortune on it. Smuggling guns, ammunition, into Mexico, trading goods into Mexico, running freight cars down into Mexico, bringing goods. On the American side, in what is now Naco, Arizona, they at one time had 6,000 troops stationed out there in little tents, and eventually built a fort at what is now thought of as Camp Newell, it's on Wilson Road there. It's a very large adobe complex. Yeah. We were involved in trying to restore it a couple of years ago. 
they had as many as 6,000 troops stationed down there. And by 1919, in reaction to the Mexican Revolution, they had established, if you will, they didn't use the word virtual, but a virtual line of security across the Mexican-U.S. border, stretching from Arevaca down to Brownsville, Texas, where they would have these cavalry outposts every 20 to 30 miles. That's about as far as patrol could get in a day to keep those Mexicans in their place. And there's these terrific headlines about it. Cost, it cost a ton of money at the time, $19 million. That's a lot of money in 1929. I'm sorry, 1919. $19 million, 1919. A ton of money. But they were trying to establish a security chain across the U.S.-Mexico border because they were afraid of those people. Those are the kinds of words they used, crossing into America and somehow denigrating our country. I'm not saying that's my position. I'm saying that's what they were saying. You read a lot about the sensationalism of the border crossing. But what does it really mean for people that live there? When the woolly mammoths were coming up and down the valley, you would get a couple of hundred people crossing in any given period of time. In 2003, when I moved down to the border, I was living in New Jersey, had a very great job at a very nice university, and saw this ad at U of A South, and I went, I know that area. And then I looked at real estate, and I was living in a little one-room apartment that was a little bit smaller than this, and thinking, I could live on 40 acres off the grid. I'm out of here, and I'm going to the Southwest. And I got the job, and I'm very happy to be here still. But in 2003, when I moved down here, the Tucson sector, which stretches pretty much from Yuma to Douglas, had 340,000 apprehensions. It's estimated in the Tucson sector, depends on who you talk to, the Border Patrol likes to say they had 1.2 million crossers of which they apprehend about a quarter of them. Talking to agents on the ground and piecing other things together, it's probably more likely we had like three million crossers. A lot of it was funded through Cochise County. They had 100,000 apprehensions. It's pretty evident that we probably had a million crossers in a county of 125,000 people, a million crossers. Now, Cochise County is a big chunk of land. It's about six times the size of Rhode Island. It's about 6,000 square miles. But that's a heck of a lot of people walking across the border. My neighbor, John Ladd, has about 14,000 acres. You never ask a rancher these kinds of questions. Or at least I can't. You probably could. I've had students ask him. But he was getting at least 1,000 crossers a week. He was getting probably at least 100 a day. Some days he'd get a couple hundred. On my little 40 acres, there's a really nice little arroyo that goes down into Mexico. I guess out here we call them washes. I'm used to calling them arroyos goes down into Mexico about 20 miles, I would get at least 150 to 200 crossers a week, a week. Never bothered me, never bothered anything at the house, but they, you always know they're there, and it's a very interesting phenomenon. When I first moved down there in 2003, this was the kind of common traffic pattern. People walking on foot, they're just folks looking for work, to be honest. They typically brought with them a little backpack. They had a change of clothes, toothbrush, deodorant, etc. They'd jump over the fence. At the time, the fence was a five-strand barbed wire fence that really wasn't much to it. It had a lot of holes in it. Imagine that. They would jump over the fence. They'd actually lay in my lower fields, change their clothes, and leave their backpacks behind. Because you don't want to be seen carrying your backpack. In looking at some studies, the average crosser probably left about six to 10 pounds of garbage behind. Their backpacks, their clothes, sometimes a pair of shoes, change of pants, change of shirts. 
That doesn't sound like a lot, but eight pounds of trash times a million crossers a year is a heck of a lot of people. I mean, is a heck of a lot of trash. We worked on a project up in the Huachucas for a while. I don't know how many thousands of those big green bags of garbage we packed out with horses. Now, I, I, I was enjoying it for the horse packing part of it, because I love to pack horses, but it's a phenomenal logistic problem. Now, I'm fairly lucky, but cows are not the smartest animals I've ever worked with in my life. They'll eat stuff like that. And depending on the cow and what they eat and where it ends up in their uh, digestive system, it can do them in. What has changed is the way in which we have intensified our militarization of the border. Apprehensions are way down, 210,000 versus 400,000 in 2003. The number of crossers depends on who you talk to. The Border Patrol insists that they've got this down. They think now it's down to half a million, maybe. They like to claim all their good law enforcement. I think more likely it's because the construction industry has gone belly up in the Southwest and people have just gone home. Cochise County, 2010, we had 60,000 apprehensions. They think they catch one out of four, so it's still a quarter to half a million crossers a year. That's still a heck of a lot of people crossing. What is fascinating to me is the Tucson sector has increased their budget in 2003. I want to say it was, it was definitely under $100 million. In 2010, it was $400 million. Now, Colin and again and I were talking a bit. Now call me cynical. This is my opinion. Okay, maybe it's not an historical fact. But that's a pretty damn big business yeah. to be involved in in this part of the country. That's a lot of money. I can tell you in Cochise County, being in the Border Patrol is one of the best jobs you can possibly be in. Before I got tenure, I looked at it as an option. <laughs> I was actually just a little bit too old. You have to be 37 when you join because you have a mandatory retirement at 57 to get out of the Border Patrol. Border Patrol is the single most dangerous law enforcement job in the country besides prisons. They have more shootings, shootouts, shootings, officer-involved shootings than any other law enforcement agency in the country. And particularly on the border in Cochise County, these are guys, for the most part, that are fresh out of the academy. It's their first assignment. They're 25 years old. They're out there in the dark in the middle of the night with a gun and told to, like, catch folks. I cannot imagine a harder, more terrifying job. And when you talk to the guys on the ground, you get a very different story than when you talk to the management. The good guys on the ground are looking for the criminals. You know, maybe one out of 10, one out of 20 crossers is a real criminal. Right. They're <clears throat> rapists, they're murderers, they're child molesters, they're sex crimes, they're uh, burglars, they're robbers. Those are the folks that they're looking for. The folks that are crossing for work, they're very ambivalent about it. It's a very fascinating kind of place. What has also changed in this period of time, as you know, and I think Javier may have touched on it, and you'll see some more about it, is the escalation of the cartel drug wars in northern Mexico. In 2003, when I moved down to that part of the country, I had a student, and it's a long story, but he took me down to Magdalena to meet some folks. And we met a number of coyotes. And about half of the guys were just people who were actually trying to help folks get over the line, and it's what they did for a living. If you and I had grown up in Magdalena, it might be what I'd do for a living, too. The other half were criminals with various levels of ties to more organized crime, but they're, they're just guys. The people that are crossing today are led by cartel-tied 
folks, whether you're in the drug business or you're in the people business, it has really changed. And for people living on the border, we feel far less safe than we used to. My neighbor John is getting far less, far fewer crossers today. He's getting 400 a week. It's only 20,000 a year. It's down from a couple hundred a day. But he's getting a couple loads of drugs come through his property every week. I was down yesterday, I think I mentioned this at the beginning, but we were looking with the Border Patrol supervisor, because John's pretty fed up, which is a whole story in itself. But they had literally come up to a 14-foot steel fence, taken torches and grinders, cut the fence, laid these ramps down, driven a truck, we think three trucks actually, over with drugs, put the fence back up. And the Border Patrol never caught them. So they welded? They uh, tied back. They yeah. Well, these guys, when they tie it back, they use wire. They use wire and wire it up. I'm still getting probably 50 crossers a week of people on foot. They used to be small groups of about 10 to 12. Now we're seeing groups of 20 to 30, very organized. And I'm getting a couple loads of drugs per week, typically people on foot. And we know that they're there because people have put game cameras out now so that you can watch them go by. A typical guy is carrying 40 kilos of marijuana, two 20 kilo packs, it's about 88 pounds. At a thousand bucks a pound, I was being conservative here, but a thousand bucks a pound, that's 80,000 bucks worth of drugs. Get 10 or 12 guys in the line, that's a million dollars. There's a lot of stuff at stake here. And even worse, what we know is that some of these poor guys, some of them are criminals, criminals are on their own in my view, but some of them are guys like you and I that we wanted to cross the border, we didn't have the $3,000 that the cartels expect from you now. Our families are being held hostage back in whatever town we're from, and we have to make the delivery or else. It's a very serious game, and the stakes have changed quite a bit. So are you saying they're taking people hostage and recruiting these yes. uh, mules? So, sort of. I think it's a little more nuanced than that, but yes. I mean, more typically, it's like if I've made my way up near the border and I don't have the 3,000 to get the last chunk across, a guy comes up and says, hey, you want to go across, you don't have the $3,000, tell you what, you take the drugs, we'll waive your $3,000 or we'll cut it in half. But if it doesn't work out, we know where your family lives. I see. One of my favorite stories, in, in, partially I'm trying to give you a bit of a flavor of what life is like on the border for folks. There's a, this is the arroyo that runs down through my land, it goes all the way to San Pedro, goes down to Mexico about 20 miles. On a Saturday afternoon, all this, we were out building our dairy actually at the time, and all of a sudden there's all this activity and all these border patrol guys and they're running around. And uh, they caught some guys down about over here, the guys had dropped their marijuana and ran back and jumped over the fence. The National Guard had been sitting right there watching, <laughs> watching the whole thing and didn't see them. Just amazing. I'll tell you one more. Just this is another good the camouflage story. of the landscape? Yeah. Just the, uh you know, it, I mean, we've only got like 40 acres, but you know, you're looking at a couple hundred acres just right there. It's a very large landscape in which to try and find people. If you don't have a sense of scale, an acre is about the size of a football field, give or take. I'll tell you one more good story. So there was a different, it was a Thursday afternoon, I was over here working in the dairy. And uh, these pickups came hauling down the road, and people normally drive that fast. They must have been going 50, 60 miles an hour. Truck goes by, another truck goes by. Next thing I know, here come like six Border Patrol agents. Then a few minutes later, here come like six more, and they've got their lights on this time. And they chased these guys. They tried to, they caught them loading marijuana into a different truck over at the river. 
So they chase these guys in the trucks all the way down. The San Pedro crosses into Mexico right around in here. They chased them all the way down to that corner. And the first guy jumped out of his truck, got through the fence, he was gone. The second guy jumps out of the truck, you know, don't, don't shoot, don't shoot, I give up, I give up. So the guys lowered their guns and he jumped over the fence. <laughs> and they won't shoot in New Mexico after. Nor should they, perhaps. But one of the responses along the border over the last 10, 15 years has been a rise of vigilante groups. You may have heard about the Ranch Rescue Group who got to start down in Texas in the late, well, in the mid-90s, made their way into southern Arizona, involved in a number of different incidents. One of their incidents culminated actually in Bisbee when they tried to serve a warrant on a guy over some weapons charges and he decided to have a shootout with the FBI. It didn't go well for him. Some of you may have heard of Chris Simcox who started the Minutemen. An outsider, not unlike the Earps, who'd moved into the area bought the Tombstone Epitaph, a little newspaper, and started up this Minutemen group. In 2006, I believe it was, they staged a big thing down in Cochise County where they're gonna bring the Minutemen from all over the country and they come down and secure the border for us. They ended up building a fence on my neighbor John's ranch. Don has not much use for Chris. But they offered to build him about a quarter million bucks worth of fence. He was like, shit, you wanna build me a free fence? Knock yourself out. So they got started on the fence Okay, and I'll be blunt, a lot of these guys are fat, overweight, white guys, not unlike myself. But after a few days, they realized it was too hot and too hard, so they had to hire contractors to finish the fence. But to give you the level of sophistication that these guys have, John had put up a gate on the road because he didn't want him crossing into his property. We live on a private road, although the Border Patrol uses it every day. I'll never forget these two guys that really, really nice, like $50,000 SUV all jacked up. Do you know how we get to the border? <laughs> I have a lot of confidence in it, but if you go back. <laughs> but the difference between the Minutemen, who are mostly fat white guys drinking beer in their SUVs, notice these guys. They've got guns, they're wearing camouflage, they've got night scopes, and they're out hunting for illegals. Border crossing. Another neighbor of ours is just across the river. I was gonna make some sarcastic remark, I'll let it go. Glenn Spencer started what is now called the American Border Patrol. He took it upon himself, he moved out to Cochise County. He located on this ranch that was owned by a local guy and started this website. When he originally started up, what he had were a couple of things. He had some cameras up on poles that he would watch the border and then call in to the Border Patrol when he saw crossers. He also had some unmanned aerial vehicles he was using for a while. Much of Cochise County is a no-fly zone. If you've ever been a pilot, that's a big bozo no-no. You don't fly in a no-fly zone. It's very restrictive. It's one of the larger no-fly zones in the country. But he had these unmanned aerial vehicles, and he would like fly up and down the border at night, which is kind of annoying because this thing goes for hours at a time. But they finally figured out that actually the cartels were watching his website to see where the border patrol was <laughs> and then jumping the fence when he wasn't looking. <laughs> In some ways, th I'm, this is sarcastic, but he's my hero because he's now made the Southern Poverty Law Center's watch list for hate crimes. And then there's Roger Barnett. He's part of a family that's been in Cochise County for a long time. I admit I buy my propane from his family because they were good to me when I was in a financial hard spot. But Roger goes out and hunts crossers and actually got in a bunch of trouble because he held a bunch of them hostage at gunpoint. 
waiting for the border patrol, and you've read about it, he lost his lawsuit and owes a bunch of money because he violated their civil rights. Very controversial case. If the border, and particularly the southern Arizona, holds, if you will, a romantic image for a lot of us. It's beautiful, the sunsets, the open face, the saguaros, it's hard to beat. It's also very much the home to a Wild West mythology. When I look at people like Roger Burnett, Barnett, and Chris Simcox and these guys, I gotta tell you, I think of Wyatt Earp, the Cowboys, and the Committee for Safety. We have a long history in the Southwest of vigilante response to people on the border. Now, call me cynical, go back. These guys also make a living at this, at this point in time. Glenn is very proud that he gets donations from all over the country and has an annual budget, near as I can guesstimate, of a couple hundred thousand bucks. He still flies his plane up and down the border. He used to fly it out of his backyard, but he got busted by the county because it was an illegal airstrip. But he flies up and down the border still. See him on a regular basis. And if you've ever flown planes, you know it's expensive. Gas is expensive, maintenance is expensive, and planes are not free. They're part, I would argue, they're making their own living on the border by exploiting, again, that border and those differences in a certain kind of way. There's a lot of people that follow folks like Glenn, go back one more, like the folks that joined the Minutemen. I think not unlike some of the earlier vigilantes, say during the Chinese Exclusion Act, whenever America has had an economic downturn, racism explodes. 1929, we deported more than a million Mexican-Americans, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, whether they had citizenship or not. They put them on a bus, they ground them up in downtown LA and various places, put them on a bus and take them back down. It was much harder to cross back. Guys like Chris have made a comfortable living out of the Minutemen. They finally had a number of fights internally, mostly on how they were spending money and how they were using money. Some people had ostensibly mortgaged their homes and invested in retirement savings to come out and work with this group. Some of the people, and I've talked to, I don't know if I'd say 100, but certainly dozens of them. Some of them are true believers that believe we're really being invaded and that we need help and they're trying to do the right thing. I, I honestly think they think that. I'm not saying I think that, but they think that. Some of them are rebels without a clue looking for something to do. <laughs> Some of them are very angry men who've lost their uh, livelihoods in life for one reason or another and are looking for someone to be a scapegoat. Very few women with them, very few. But still, we have the border. I mean, I, Colin again and I were talking, but in some ways, you know, I'm making a living off of the border. I had a group of Borderlinks kids down on, what's today, Wednesday, Monday, you know, giving them a tour on the border. I actually don't make money off of it, the Borderlinks does. You know, I write about this. I'm a professor, one of my areas of expertise is supposed to be the South We're here making a living, if you will, off the border. Part of the reason we have our ranch on the border is because land was cheaper, because mm -hmm. it was on the border. Other people didn't want it. I love the border. I've always liked living on the border. I, 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 I'm fascinated by it. During the Spanish colonial period, they had whole books with different levels of blood content to define whether you were sangre puro, pure blood, or you were at the bottom of the food chain, an Indio. It's a very, very complicated place. I think that a lot of the reason people still come to Southern Arizona to be blunt is for increase. Sierra Vista, we get a lot of people retired there. A lot of people come through there in their military service at some point to Fort Huachuca. Housing is, comparatively speaking, cheap. 
You can play golf 360 days a year. Golf is cheap. Medical care is cheap. Taxes are cheap. On and on and on. I think that people in a lot of ways are still exploiting, if you will, for increase the border. Even if you're not doing it purely economically, the kind of aesthetic beauty that is in southern Arizona. You saw the view at my ranch several slides back. I couldn't afford that anywhere else in the country for the kind of property that I was able to pick up there. We're exploiting that border, if you will, once again. So actually, I lied. There is no, there is no test. <laughs> and really, I want you to remember Woolly Mammoth and Wyatt Earp and to think about the border and those cycles in very large groves. You can go back and fill in some of the details yourself. Javier's quite right. You're a bunch of teachers, so I'll say it to you. Google has changed the world. You have access to the single best research library that the world has ever seen in any point in history. And if you have the least bit of critical faculty, you can use Google and Wikipedia to get information. I, I've given up. I mean, I start kids there. If they cite it in their paper, I turn it in half and give it back to them. But for, as a place to start looking for information, the internet cannot be beat at this point in time. As historians, you know, God, we used to have to go through archives and look through paper. You know, now we Google it all and just finding aid. It's totally changed the world. But one thing I find interesting about history is I would argue that what's going on on the U.S.-Mexico border as we speak is very much a continuous process with a continuity between those woolly mammoth hunters, Wyatt Earp, and these crazy vigilantes. And I showed you the tamer guys. There's some other guys I've talked to who I won't photograph and I won't talk about much. They're stockpiling ammunition by the tens of thousands of rounds. They're, they're wacky. They're scary. But there's a continuity, I would argue, between that kind of stuff. The border, if you will, is a very complex place. The complexity of things along the border, to me, are phenomenal. You have the Mexican army coming up to the border, both interdicting with the drug trafficking and working with the drug trafficking. <laughs> you have what is essentially a narco-civil war within shooting distance of the United States. You also have the cartels containing part of that war away from the border because they don't want the U.S. intervening. You have people who are just folks living, particularly in northern Mexico. I, I don't know what to say to them anymore. I don't, so, you know, like most people, they go about their lives. You know, they have their children, they go to school, they do whatever they're going to do. But this has really severely impacted them, particularly economically. Tourism has dropped off enormously, which is one of the main economic drivers on the border. The complexity of law enforcement on our side is just unbelievable. Right. You got the border patrol, you got the FBI, you got the ATF, you got the vigilantes, you got the sheriff, you got the local police, you got all these guys running around. You got me and all my neighbors, most of whom own guns at this point, and have made their decisions. You know, you want to kill me? I don't really care. I've had a good life, but you know, you, you're not going to let you hurt my family. Right. And people have largely driven that kind of line in the sand. You also find that people don't like the border crossers, yet I've never met a rancher down there that refused water to somebody that was thirsty. The crossers themselves will ask you to call the border patrol to come pick them up because they're dehydrated, they're lost, and they're hot, and they're tired, and they're hungry. And they'll get processed through the system and go again another day, maybe. Yeah, you know, the, the lads, the caps, and the belts always Mm -hmm. 
and the convergence in the way in which the complexity of things have come together in this point in time. We've gone through one of the worst depressions, recessions that this country's ever seen. Racism is on a rampant string in this country in a way that I don't think we've seen since probably the 20s, maybe the 30s before the World War. That's just my personal take on stuff. Will we swing back the other way if economic prosperity comes back? Historically, I would argue that's what's always happened. We deported all the people in the 1929, the early 30s. Since World War II broke out, we needed people to work. We brought folks back. Has economic prosperity increased through the 50s in America? No one cared. Every time there's an economic downturn, we start caring again. Will it come back? Hard to say. But I will also say, with all of those problems and issues and interesting things, I, I don't want to live anywhere else. I love the border in a way that I, I don't know. I hadn't realized how interesting and strange it was until I moved back east to go to graduate school. And it was the first time I'd ever been away from the border, really, in most of my life. It's like, this is just the coolest place. It's so complicated. Where else can you go across? In high school, I used to go across to Mexico on a regular basis. I won't say what we're doing, but <laughs> you know, where else in the world can you can you go across an international border like that with such ease and facility? Most of my life, when I've lived on the border, you know, we crossed for shopping for certain things when there was the economic disparity. I just built a commercial dairy this last year for our goat cheese business, and I, I was really thinking about it. Twenty years ago, I would have gone over to Sonora and hired like three or four guys who would come and camp on my property and right. built the dairy. Right. And then when they were done, they would have gone back home. I can't do that now. I've got a guy that works for me part-time that comes from Naco Sonora, but he has a green card, and I actually did have to check because I don't want to get in trouble. You know, it's, it's a very complicated, evolving place. But for me, as well as an historian, putting this in some very large, longer context changes the whole dialogue. And particularly when I've taught in Sierra Vista, when I start teaching a class in the history of the U.S.-Mexico border, people have very strong opinions. Mm -hmm as you might imagine. Every one of my kids that are brown have been stopped and hassled by the Border Patrol at the checkpoint between Sierra Vista and the freeways. I can tell you as a white guy, I've never once had a problem, not once, not ever. And my dogs go nuts every time we go through there. It's a complicated, complicated place. I also think it's really, really beautiful and extraordinary. So that's all I've got. Thank you. I'll take, take some questions.